Hey friends, Jonathan Rogers here. Before we get started, I wanted to mention a new online writing class that I've put together. It's called Writing with Hobbits. Over six weeks, starting August 18th, we'll read The Hobbit together, and we'll talk about the principles by which Tolkien works his particular kind of magic as a writer. Then we'll apply those principles to our own writing. I'd love to see you there. Find out more at thehabit.co slash hobbits. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Daniel Darling is a preacher, a speaker, and a writer. He's Senior Vice President for Communications at NRB. Before that, he was Vice President for Communications at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. That is to say, he's a professional communicator in many capacities. His new book is Away With Words, Using Our Online Conversations for Good. It releases this week, and when I heard about it, I knew I had to have Daniel Darling on the Habit Podcast. Dan Darling, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast with me. Man, I'm I'm pumped to be on here with you, and uh, glad uh, to receive your invite, and I'm a huge fan, so. Good. Well, so let's talk about, uh, you've got a book coming out in uh, probably will release this podcast about the time uh, your book comes out called Away With Words. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, basically this is a book about um, the way that we act and speak online, right? Um, and, you know, it's not, it, I've been thinking about this for a while, uh, mainly because my career is basically working with words. If you think mm-hmm. about it, uh, whether as a pastor, uh, as a communicator, as a podcaster, as a guy that works in communications, you know, yeah, decade or so. Uh, and as a writer, you know, I've written, this will be my ninth book. I've written, you know, thousands of articles and, you know, it's a, it occurs to me, you know, like I'll often say to my wife, you know, like people actually just pay me for words. Isn't that kind of crazy? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's interesting to me how much uh, Christianity is a religion of words. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a God who has chosen to speak to us, right? Um, mm. God spoke creation to an exist into existence. Jesus is called uh, the Logos, the Word. Mm-hmm. Hebrews says that he's the he's the way that God has chosen to speak to us in this age. Uh, there's a lot to do with our words, you know, as, as image bearers, one of the things that makes us distinct above the rest of creation is just how developed our communication is. Right. I mean, uh, animals can communicate somewhat in a rudimentary way, but mm-hmm. you know, you're never going to see a, an elephant start a newspaper or, <laughs> you know, things like that. So this yeah. one of the ways that we image God is that we, we communicate, we use words. Yeah, and and so um, when, when you put it in those terms, uh, one thing that, that came to my mind is is the idea from um, from uh, Wendell Berry. He says there there are no unsacred places; there are just sacred places and desecrated places. Mm. And it, it seems to me, in some ways, your your um, book is about the ways that we desecrate language in our online communication and. and I mean, especially in our online communication. Yeah, it is. I mean, and look, I'm I'm not making the case that 
you know, we should just like, this is not a book about screen time. That's a valuable conversation that others that are better than me, like Andy Crouch and others have engaged in. And this is not a conversation about, um, um, you know, uh, should we go online or offline? You know, I'm, I'm assuming that we're going to be communicating online. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go back to the 1950s. The internet's here to stay. We're not going to suddenly become Amish. But what I am saying in, in, in getting at what, what you just said is we have to be cognizant of the way that, you know, the mediums we use, the way they change the way we speak, if that makes sense. That uh, I'm not just advocating that we use more civility online, which is very important, but that we go underneath that and understand what it is that we're trying to do and what is what are our motivations when we speak online like what what is driving us to to say what we're we're saying does that make sense oh, okay so you say we're going deeper than civility what is what is deeper than civility what is below that well i mean civility is important right i mean i think first mm-hmm. peter three fifteen says have an answer for every man that the hope that that, that lies within you do it with gentleness and kindness so mm-hmm. the bible assumes that civility and courage go together, that you can speak hard truths, you can have hard and difficult conversations, you can do them in public, as 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 we see in the Bible, you can have public polemics and public mm-hmm. responses, but to do it with kindness and gentleness. So the Bible assumes that. Um, however, I think we always just got to be looking at our underlying motivations. And um, for instance, you know, there's a temptation for us to curate a version of ourselves online that might be missing or lacking in real life. Mm-hmm. So I find it fascinating, for instance, that the people who are often the most pugilistic online are among the most um, gentle and meek at times in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something there. I, I think also you know, there's just this temptation to say, there's a part of me that I wish I had that I never got to exercise that I can then curate online. So if you never were the kind of strong person or the bully in real life, being online through the relative safety of a keyboard gives you that and gives you that kind of opportunity. It can also happen in other ways, right? Like, you know, you can curate a version of, of, a parent that you are like you could be a super dad on Instagram yeah, right. or a super mom with all these carefully curated images. And I'm always a little bit cynical when I, and I post on Instagram and I post all kinds of things, but I'm always wondering when I watch pe- people's stuff, like, okay, who set up that shot? What was that conversation? Like, you know, yeah. so we can do that or the whole like vulnerability mindset that we can, uh, project a, a messiness that is even more messy than is reality in order to generate that audience. So there's just a whole host of motivations. And I, what I, what I think I end up get getting to is that, you know, if, and, and I, I learned a lot from uh, Kurt Thompson who wrote a great book called the soul of shame that to be known by God and to know God is the most important thing. And if you are known by God and you know, God, then um, you are free to be the person you really are and you don't have to project a version that you think will get you affirmation 
mm-hmm. from a tribe that you that you're seeking it from. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Um, here's something I like to talk about for a minute, though. Um, in some ways, writing is—I mean, not in some ways—writing is curation, right? Mm-hmm. You're choosing what to leave in and what to take out. Mm-hmm. Um, and any any kind of personal essay or memoir or autobiography is a is a curation of one's of one's image, um, which I, I do think is is um, sort of put in a hyperdrive by social media. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not just, this isn't, and this is not the point you're making anyway, this is not a new thing. The idea that, that as we, as we project an image, it's a curated image that may or may not. I mean, how often do you, you know, do you, are there books about parenting where it turns out the, you know, the, kids of that of that author were were miserable or or you know there are all kinds of of uh episodes and it's almost as if this this option this this uh, um uh, opportunity to um to be hypocritical has been ex- expanded beyond just people who get published to a whole a whole world right yeah you're right and and the truth is right like we um you know, everybody is, it's hypocritical in some sense, you know, sure. uh, except for Jesus, right? So even the best of us don't live out what we profess to say, what we, what we say we believe. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that is the essence of the Christian story that none of us are the heroes. Jesus is the hero. And upon close scrutiny, even the best lives, the most spirit-filled, the most exemplary lives. Take the microscope. You can find things mm-hmm. that uh, don't match up to, to what was said. Uh, but social media provides us this great platform to project a version of ourselves that, yeah, that, yeah. that we want people to see. And you're right. You know, Anybody writing and anybody speaking, anybody putting content out there is doing that. I have a whole chapter on, on that whole idea of platform how do we think about platform? Uh, I think it's a complicated conversation. You know, there's a lot of conversation today about the evangelical industrial complex and celebrity celebrity Christianity and how bad it is. And I, I resonate with some of that, except what I find fascinating is that people talking about the problem of celebrity and platform are doing it on platforms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always want to say, Okay, you're recording a podcast about the evils of evangelical celebrity. Do you only want that podcast to be listened by like 10 people so you don't become a celebrity? Like, like, so that is an interesting thing. So I think we have to accept that anybody who is doing any creative work is there's a tacit acknowledgement that, yes, we think we have something that we want the world to share and that the world to enjoy. And I don't think we should apologize for that, right? Like if I write a book, I do want as many people as possible to read it because I think God has given me a, a gift and a message, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you um, record a podcast, you're hoping a, the widest possible audience could hear it because you think it's, it's something worth hearing. If you uh, are doing a painting or recording an album, you know, you don't want it just to re- restrict it. You want to release it to the world. 
And our gifts are one way that we love our neighbor and one way we serve the world. At the same time, there is a kind of, I think where we have to just draw the line is, and I think everything we do on social media, and this kind of comes back full circle, you know, what are our motivations? Um, Are we doing this so that we can be a thing, right? Am I sharing this story on Twitter that maybe I've slightly embellished about uh, a situation that happened to me because this is the moment where if I do this, I'm going to get an audience. I'm going to get attaboys. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get the affirmation that I don't feel like I get in real life. I think those are the questions we have to ask ourselves. Or are we, as, as one of my friends who's a filmmaker says, do we have the perspective of like the little boy who brought his lunch to Jesus that I bring the best that I have to Jesus and let him, you know, decide what to do with it to where we're, we're creating our, our things. We're doing the best to get the word out, but then we're trusting Jesus for the, the expansion of that platform in the sense that we're not, we're not enslaved to the affirmation of our audience. I know these are complicated things and and creators obviously have to draw the line in different places. Just, you know, yeah, sure. And I mean, and, and even the language of trusting Jesus to expand the platform, I, I think to refine that, maybe it's just trusting Jesus to to get this to whoever needs it, whether that's a large platform or a small platform, right? I yeah, mean, that's, a, that's a great point. Yeah, that, that's really good. And listen, platform is not new. So we act yes. like it's a 20th, 20th century thing or 21st century thing. Yeah. But, re- but really, if you think about it, um, um, George Whitfield at a platform, he, he was preaching to all these people, Charles Spurgeon, mm-hmm. uh, going even farther back. Uh, Augustine had a platform of some, some kind, Martin Luther, John Calvin, even, you know, look, the apostle Paul had a platform of writing letters to the churches. Yeah. But, so, but I do think, I do think we need to make a distinction between, um, you know, the, you're, you're describing people who are tending to their business, which is not platform building, Right. They, they had business they were tending to. Um, I, I mean, it, are you, you might make a different case, but it seems to me St. Augustine was not in the business of platform building. He was in the bil- business of preaching, yeah. teaching, writing. Um, and I do yeah. run across a lot of people who talk about, here's how you build your platform. And I don't, I mean, was, was only Paul, Paul had a platform, but not because he was a platform builder, right? That's a great point. That is a great point that, that you know, like Augustine and John Calvin and Luther didn't start out to say, how can I be a thing? How can I build a platform? Now God expanded that. And then what the question that, and I think that is the difference. Am I, am I trying to be famous just for being famous or do I have good work that I'm tending to? And I think that's, this is what's is really the separator. Um, I'm really grateful for instance, that I came of age before social media so yeah. I could work on my craft and hone my craft before anybody was reading it. Thank, thankfully. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think of the temptations now for someone who comes out of seminary, you know, and you've already got a Twitter following and you try to let your platform get ahead of your gifting in the sense of like, and, and there's a, a perverse incentive to be outrageous or to be seen as something that you're not to be an activist all these things. Uh, so I, I think that is a great point where you tend to your gifts, 
and see what the Lord does with it. And then I think there's another conversation of, and this is really what gets at the heart of the book is that one, now that I have a platform of some kind, whether I'm a pastor of a church or I'm a Bible teacher mm-hmm. or I'm an author, how do I steward that? And do I understand that, you know, I think James three really gets to the heart of this, that those of you who have been called to be a teacher understand the weight and the gravity of that. And sometimes I think when we go online and we, and, and especially people with, with a lot of followers and a lot of people reading what they say, do we understand that we're in public, that a Bible teacher or, or someone who has a big following that everything you say has, has weight and do we carefully measure that and do we steward that well in a way that I think sometimes we get a little fast and loose mm-hmm. on with our words online and people who have big platforms, you could lead people astray. You could, you could lead people to behaviors that aren't healthy, you know? So I think those are things we have to really consider. Yeah. Um, the, uh, there, there is a, it seems to me there is a real disconnect between um, like when I, when I think of my work as, as a writer, I feel like what I bring to the world is well thought out. I mean, hopefully well thought, something I've, I've worked on, thought, thought hard about, crafted, polished, and then here it is. Um, and, and that in its, in some ways is so antithetical to the idea of the hot take, for instance, you know, that, that something happened this morning and I want to be the first person to say something clever about it. Um, and, and I, you know, it, it's hard to sort of strike a balance between, um, you know, people are always talking about the importance. And again, we're talking about platform building, the importance of being involved on social media, but social media in, in some ways is so different from what the, the hard work of writing has always been. Um, and I, I just want to talk, I want to talk about hot takes for a minute. <laughs> um, cause I know you, you use that phrase a few times and it, it might be helpful. Um, when you use the word hot take, what do you mean? Huh. Uh, that's a good question. And I'm using that word knowing that I'm guilty of, of doing hot takes, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think it's kind of a loose term, you know, it's, here's my take on the latest news story mm-hmm. you know, that I got to push out there, whether it's an article or a blog or a tweet, um, you know, it's, you know, I think pejoratively it's kind of used for people who just kind of have a take on something, uh, an opinion on, on something that might not be fully formed mm-hmm. and perhaps we might've got gotten all the, all the, uh, facts about, um, you know, there's a temptation right now to just speak quickly. And I, I spend a lot of time in the book just talking about, um, you know, they need to slow down and get the whole story before we just go mm-hmm. crazy on it. Um, what is the motivation for hot takes? I just think there's this pressure that uh, we feel we have that we have to speak out on everything all the time right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I And I even see this like, you know, I'm saying, you know, people will tweet, I'm saying pastors are silent on this issue. I'm like, are they really? Or are they just not tweeting? 
Mm-hmm. You know, they could be talking to their elder board at this moment. They could be counseling someone. They could be conducting a funeral at this very moment. Um, right. And this idea that you have to be as mad as I am at the same issue at the same time on the same medium, it's just weird and something that didn't exist 15 years ago, right? Like 15 years right. ago, I didn't care what the pastor of a medium-sized church in three states, three states away from me cared about <laughs> some, some issue. But now, now there's that pressure. So I think sometimes we feel that pressure uh, to kind of do that. And some people are more equipped to comment on things than others. Some people have, you know, have thought through things. Um, I, I think the admonition is to really, you know, even as someone who writes op-eds and who tweets about news stories is to really just make sure what is the story here? Do we have the full details? And I'm, am I the person that should be speaking about it? Mm-hmm. How many times a day do you send out a tweet? Huh. I don't know. I need to measure it. I probably tweet. I tweet quite frequently. Uh, I probably tweet less than I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tweet quite frequently, uh, yeah. uh, maybe eight to 10 times a day, perhaps, uh-huh. um, you know, about a sort, a range of things. I'm not yeah. saying that's a good model. That's just kind of where I'm at. I, <laughs> I've used that medium probably more than Facebook for uh-huh. one reason or another. Mm-hmm. I think I need to change my Twitter bio to say, you know, you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Follow yeah, if yeah. you want to, but you know, there's, you know, there's not much going to be happening here. Um, yeah. For, I mean, in many, for in large part, for the reasons that you're discussing here, that that um, I feel like my product is not a quick, um, you know, what what I what I ha- where my giftings lie is not being wise quickly. <laughs> you know, hopefully being wise slowly. Whatever I'm being, I know it slowly, but it's you know, it's it's not it's not quick. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's good. And um, everyone needs to know their gifts. And honestly, I mean, I like Twitter. Twitter is a way that you can get, you know, I think Twitter is more influencers, Mm -hmm. leaders, more elite than like Facebook is more the masses, if you will. Mm -hmm. But Twitter, you know, you can get it to certain people who can amplify your message. So I, th- I enjoy it, but I, I do think we have to recognize that, you know, it can take away from doing the longer work. That's better, right? Yeah. The, the podcast, the long form article, the, mm-hmm. the kind of deeper work uh, that might be more satisfying and, and more and, and a better way to do things. I also think we need to understand that it's not real life. I mean, I yeah. like using Twitter, but this is a fragment, a small fragment of the population. Like, uh-huh. and I say this a lot in the book, probably too much, but like my church, I bet my church here in suburban Nashville, maybe 10% are on Twitter, mm-hmm. you know? So the things that are important to a certain subsection of people, it's amazing how the conversations are different when you're on the ground. So we just have to know that and not be shaped and catechized by one medium's conversation. Yeah, that's a great point. You use a, the phrase uh, information discipline. Mm. What, do, what do you mean by that phrase? Well, I think we need to, uh, there's a couple of things I'm thinking about here. One is to, to diversify our sources of information. Mm-hmm. 
um, across the ideological spectrum so that we're not being shaped by one side's narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we live in a time where news is wildly deregulated for good and bad. Right. Right. Um, And so even news, we have to be wise about what our, where our sources are and get it from a variety of places. I think we should read widely, read people Mm -hmm. disagree with us, read people who challenge us. Uh, And then I also think information discipline means we don't have to know everything. And, you know, I think there's a difference between an insatiable curiosity for knowledge that God gives human beings that you, you know, see commended in, in, in Proverbs of uh, the search for wisdom and knowledge. There's a difference between that and a kind of um, endless uh, accumulation of facts and tidbits and things that don't really help us and aren't really useful. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Nicholas Carr talks about this in the shallows that we know more information, but we may actually know less. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that's what information discipline is. It's a hard struggle. Uh, I talk in there about my own struggles with when I'm bored or I'm sleepless, just kind of the phone being that portal to, Hey, I can read more, another article. I can, search another thing yeah. and and really backing away from that i think is important yeah and it, it it feels like you are um learning or growing or i mean it it, it often does when, when you're consuming more and more information and mm-hmm. of course consuming information is is such an important part of being a writer for instance mm-hmm. um but I, th- I also think that's a that's a dangerous whirlhole, you know, where you can sort of get in that get in that whirlhole and kind of not not get back in in the the stream of work, you know, when it feels like. Um, I mean, it, reading another article is so much easier than actually putting words on a page, and you can always justify, you know, well, I need to do a little more research. Um, you know, there there are so many parts of parts of the writing process that. Yeah, and because the, the idea of writing is so comprehensive, you know, staring out the window is part of the writing process sometimes. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's not writing, right? Um, and so, at some point, we, we have to flip that switch from consumption to production. Or, for, you know, or I, can, I can say, I know I, I definitely need to stare out the window for part of the day, but I, if I stare out the window all day, that's that's not, I'm not pursuing my calling, you know? And if I'm, if yeah. I'm reading, if I keep reading another article and calling it research, I can certainly, if my goal in life is to justify my behavior, I can justify that. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody can, nobody can deny that, that I need to, you know, nobody can say whether I need to read another article or not, but you know, at some point I've got to quit reading articles and, um, and produce. And, and I think that's what so that's what I struggle with so much um, with the the fact that I've got the internet on my computer at my desk is that it's it's like I can uh, of course it's necessary I can't just shut I can't shut it off and yet um, uh, you know I just disappear into this black hole for hours at a time. Yeah, that's so true. And I think you know it, it, it's. Um it's um 
there's a tension there, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, I have the same tension. On the one hand, I tell writers all the time, and I have to tell myself with every book project that part of the writing process is your research and your reading. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, if you're not filling yourself and filling that creative well with reading, researching, even reading outside of the topic you're reading, just, sure. just you know, if you don't feed that well, I know for myself, I can't, I can't create well, like we're, yeah. you know, this is part of what it means to be human and, and to be, um, humans and not God, right? God is the, the font of all knowing. God doesn't have to research and, and learn and grow. He's God. Yeah. We are humans, so we are not God. And we, we are finite, and there's a constant need. That's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like The quest for wisdom and knowledge is an acknowledgement of our weakness, is an acknowledgement that we're not God. Like Even every time you read a book, every time you read an article, every time you hear a lecture, you're, you're actually tacitly, tacitly acknowledging that you're not God and they're not all knowing. So that is a good thing, that quest. Yeah. And yet at the, at, at the same time, you, you hit on it that we can't always just be consuming. We have to be creating. This is also part of being an image bearer that we don't just consume creation. We cultivate it. We till yeah. it. We yeah. create new things. This is uh, how we obey God and, obey the creation mandate. So there's that constant tension that, and I think this is true, even if you're not a writer like me or you, if you're not creating books, you know, whatever you are in your field, you know, there, there's always a, a consumption. There's always a, an intake, but there's always an outtake. There's always consumption and there's always creation. And that, mm -hmm. that, that tension is really important to maintain. Um, we can get to a place where we're only consuming and we're not creating social yeah. media and the internet uh, can feed that temptation, right? That uh, I'm sitting at my desk and gosh, the internet's just there and Twitter is there. This is actually the great lie sometimes that our phones teach us. Uh, and I mentioned this in the book. It's, I think it, I got this from Jen Michelle that it goes back to the original lie of the garden that we can be all knowing. Yeah. Our phones give us the sense. Part of the reason that we get twitchy and weird when we don't have our phones, at least I do, is that you feel like you're out of control. Yeah. Right? I had a whole day like last year where my phone, the data plan wasn't working. So all I had was Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. And so um, like there was long stretches where I'm going in between work and home where like I couldn't do my maps I couldn't order stuff. I couldn't make phone calls. I couldn't look up things. And the phone gives you the sense that you're God, that you're in yeah. control. Like as, like as long as I have this portal, I can do anything. I can order stuff. I can have it delivered. I can make, order food. I can call people. I can text people. I can, yeah. I can broadcast. I can do all that. And <laughs> so I think we have to avoid that. And there's this endless, and I think even secular people are getting to this without getting to the theology of it that, um, this is what Nicholas Carr is saying that there's a there's a endless information gathering that that is not actual learning and growing right yeah uh, yeah and I right. you know this this ever learning it but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth as it, as Paul says in the Corinthians so that tension you described is really real 
consumption and creation. Yeah. It's so funny that you say I had a, that, that last year there was this day I didn't have a data plan. You know, there were also decades you didn't have a data plan. <laughs> it's yes. like our brains are just yes. re, rewired. I mean, they, I think they, in some pretty literal way, have been rewired by these devices. Um, yeah. And I, I love something that you, you, have you read Deep Work, um, Cal? I've read, I've read a lot. I've read portions of it and I've, I've read yeah. enough people who have read it. So I feel like I've read it. Yeah. I think that's such, a, that's such a great book, I think. And, and he, one yeah. principle he says is don't take a break from the internet to do your work. You know, take a break from your work to, I mean, th- think of work as the normative mm. case and uh, getting on the internet as the not normative case um, yeah. that, you know, um, which I think is, is a, a very, I think it's a helpful way to talk about it, but I've not done a great job of implementing it. Yeah, um, it's, it's hard to do. And I talk about that when, in, in terms of this idea of FOMO, of fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. And that to me is what drives a lot of it, at least for me, that you know, even on, while I'm on this podcast, I'm tempted to pull out my phone and check Twitter. Why? Not because <laughs> I'm really expecting any important news, because yeah. I'm, I'm worried that in the, in the few minutes that we're here, Something big happened and I missed it and I didn't know about it. And that's really a perverse thing that, mm-hmm. again, this idea that I, I, I can be all-knowing, there's a good and healthy um, sense of innocence when there's a lot of things going on in the world that we don't know about. Sure. And like you said, you know, uh, I'm 42 all my growing up years and all my high school years, thankfully, yeah. into my college years, there were no data plans. There were no smartphones. I didn't know if, if a, you know, person in Toledo, Ohio, uh, went into a store, for instance, you know, without a mask. Yeah. But now, you know, someone videos it and I didn't, did you see this latest thing? I didn't know whether one of the Kardashians did something, Yeah. you know, and, and it was okay. Like there's, there's a good innocence of not knowing stuff, but man, it's hard to discipline ourselves to, to kind of just put things away and just, yeah. And be present. Yeah. Um, you made a distinction that I think was really helpful. And then we kind of moved on, but I, I want to circle back around for just a minute. And that is, you said when there there's a there's a kind of learning that is recognizing our finitude you know our hum, it's a it's a humble approach to say i don't know everything and therefore you know mm-hmm. teach me as opposed to um and you were paraphrasing uh jen michelle um the idea that the the internet says to us you can know everything like God knows everything. This, this was the very first temptation in the garden was, you know, mm-hmm. the first case of FOMO ever, you know, yes. of, of the, the serpent saying, I, I think you might be missing. There's some stuff going on you don't know about. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really, I, I don't, I don't know how to um, make sure that one stays in the position of humility in learning and reading instead of, aspiring to you know godlikeness um but it's a but it's a helpful distinction i think yeah and i think some of it is involved with you know the end the thirst for knowledge and the thirst the curiosity that drives our fomo 
I think is good and God given, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, the Bible talks about the unsearchable riches of God, like this idea that there's just an unsearchable storehouse of, of things to know uh, is good. I think what gets perverted is our motivations and even the direction at which we're directing our curiosity. Mm -hmm. So um, if the motivation is I don't want to be caught not knowing stuff so that when I'm in a conversation, I can, you know, like (laughs) I can appear to be all knowing. And I think uh, the direction of our, of our curiosity can be perverted in the sense of like, knowing everything in politics and every development or everything in the entertainment world or every, every new thing is kind of junk food knowledge as opposed to the curiosity of reading a book, you know, books and long form articles and podcasts are like, you know, more filtered through a more tedious process and a little bit richer kind of things. So Mm -hmm. like, we, we can't escape the tidbits of information and scrolling Twitter and Facebook and what's going on in the world. Not always wrong and bad. I mean, we all do that, but that's kind of like snack food. I feel like yeah. versus like the real hearty meal of better, better kind of uh, sources of, of it. And we always feel better too, right? Like I just fi- finished a reading a biography of William Jennings, Bryan. Mm-hmm. you know, who was a fascinating figure in the 20th century. And, you know, he's been dead for, I don't know, 120 years or something, or 100, 100 years, I think, yeah. and has nothing to do with what's going on today. What was fascinating, you know, the book was published maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. So none of that is like in the news or hot takes or any of that stuff but it was such a thorough and wonderful, rich feast to read that book. And yeah. just, you know, so things like that, or when I sit down and read my Bible, I'm amazed with how my phone competes with my Bible reading where it's like, I'm reading a pas- a timeless passage of scripture. And then like, but, but, but I could check Twitter and see what, you know, yeah, right. yeah. what, what well, stupid there, thing is going on over here, you know? Yeah. So there's a kind of curiosity that says, I want to know what it's like to be somebody else, which is, which is a, a fundamental principle of love, right? I, I, can, I can love my neighbor if I have a better sense of what, it, of, of what it's like to be somebody besides me. And so there's a, there's a kind of curiosity, kind of learning that, that keeps me from folding in on myself. Um, and then there's, you know, the, the um, uh, as I'm sure you know, for much of church history, curiosity you know, I guess the Latin was curiositas, I guess, um, was spoken of just as a, as a sin, like it, it, a form of greed. I'm greedy for information, for self-aggrandizement, for, for whatever reason. And, and I think that this probably gets back to the distinction we were talking about a minute ago, um, a, another way to, to think about it. Am I curious as a way of getting outside of myself, as a way of loving other people, as a way of of not, you know, not in a self-aggrandizing way, um, or is, is this just 
plain greed. This is sort of a greed for information and knowledge. Yeah, that's a great point. And Paul gets at that, right? Where he, Paul, on the one hand, is warning in his letters, don't be a busybody. <laughs> don't, don't be this a tail bearer. Don't be, yeah. get down in the weeds on endless stupid controversies. At the same time, Paul's also saying, like, over and over again, like, throughout his letters about reading and studying. Like, I don't think we noticed that enough. But Paul is yeah. assuming that a follower of Jesus is going to be endlessly le- reading and studying and learning. And then Paul, at the end of his life, you know, he's about to be executed by Nero and says, can someone bring me some, some books? You know, <laughs> Paul, who was trained by Gamaliel, yeah. who was one of the most learned and wise people at the end of his life is saying, guys, I need my books. Like, so there's, you see that difference, right? Like there, yeah. there's a, I, I, I get nervous about people who, are not curious and wanting to learn, whether it's reading or documentaries or however you process information. And I also get nervous about people who always want to be on top of the latest controversy. You know, I think yeah. both of those things can be unhealthy. Well, your, your use of the word busybody is so helpful. It's like, and so social media makes us a whole world of busybodies. Mm-hmm. The, as you said, the, the, the guy who goes into the, to, the store in Toledo without a mask. Well, the people in the store in Toledo, that's their business, but it's not my business. Um, yeah. Yeah. And somehow these, these technologies make it my business. And, uh, um, and also give me a way not to deal with tend to my business that I actually have here. You know, that is my business. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. All right. We are, we are running low on time. So I'm going to, I'm going to skip to um, the question I always end with. And that is who are the writers who make you want to write Dan darling? Oh man, that's such a great question. And it's, I could do a whole podcast on this. I mean, you know, I'll just say this. Tim Keller has influenced my thinking almost Mm -hmm. more than any pastor or um, theologian. I've read almost all his stuff. Uh, people like him, someone who is an absolute wordsmith, who, who, who every book he writes is a absolute delight to read is Phil, Philip Yancey. Uh-huh. I, I was reading Philip Yancey when I was coming of age and just like, man, I like the way he crafts words and his, the way he yeah. explores ideas, you know, he's always been that way. Um, mm-hmm. I love reading like Peggy Noonan. Mm-hmm. Um, Peggy Noonan has been a wordsmith her whole life. I mean, and every time there's a epic moment in American history, you know, I feel like she gets it in a way that's hard for other people to do it in terms of the way she writes and crafts. And um, man, who else could I talk about here? Uh, I like Mark Buchanan's work, uh-huh. uh, writer out of Canada. Um, I I also sometimes like. I mean, I love I love history. So I read, I'm not a historian, but I love history. So anything by people like Ron Chernow or John Meacham or, uh-huh. you know, David McCullough, yeah. uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, any of these folks, mm-hmm. you know, is, is fantastic. Um, yeah. Gosh, who else could I talk? I mean, you know, I tell you someone who's, I do like Jen Michelle's work. Oh, She's I know. Great writer. She's she really incre- is. Incredible wordsmith. Um, yeah, she had a, she, she did an episode of this podcast and she just, I was just wowed. Yeah. By her. Uh, 
there's several of those. So I, I don't know. I could go on because I just, yeah. you know, I love, I love reading good writing, you know, yeah. as I'm sure you do. Yeah. I oh, know. It's like getting extra life. Isn't it? I mean, it's like I got the life yeah. I'm living here and then here's this book that I get to have a yeah. little extra life. So. And I do want, I do want to say this too. And I meant to say this when I said this about platform is that um, writing books, podcasts, all this work, this is a way of serving the mm-hmm. body of Christ, even people we don't know. I mean, I think of the way that you and I have been changed and blessed because we picked up a book in a bookstore or someone recommended something by someone we don't know and may never meet. Yeah. And that, that person was willing to put their gifts out there and be vulnerable and put their stuff out there, not knowing who's going to read it. And someone over here gets it and their life has changed. That's what I think should motivate us as writers that, man, God's given me this. I don't know where it's going to go. And who knows who it will help or who it will stir that I may never meet. Yeah. Agreed. Well, Dan, darling, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. And uh, I hope we can uh, uh, talk again soon. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song Too Good as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at TheHabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash 